Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is found in Philippians 2, 12 through 18. In the Pew Bible, that's page 831. Once again, that's Philippians 2, 12 through 18. In the Pew Bible, 831. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Thank you. Thank you, Emily. Good job reading that. A serviceman was mounting new tires on a car for a mechanical engineer. And as he worked, the mechanical engineer stood by and watched. The serviceman then asked the engineer, Do you know why I put half of the weights on the inside rim and half of the weights on the outside? As a matter of fact, I do, the engineer replied. And the engineer went on trying to impress the uneducated serviceman. He said, you see, the imbalance can be resolved to a point mass located in the plane of imbalance. If an equal mass is placed at 180 degrees opposite at an equivalent radius, then perfect balance will result. However, the plane of imbalance is located somewhere between the planes of the rims, And by dividing the weights between the rims, you can approximate the ideal balance. When the engineer finally finished, the serviceman stared at him for a moment and said, yeah, because if you don't, it will wobble. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the serviceman may not have understood the ins and outs of balancing tires, but he knew how to prevent them from wobbling. Do you know there are a lot of wobbly Christians in our day and age? Living in extremes can cause you to wobble. There are some who, in search of a deeper Christian experience, have fallen to an extreme position. And then reaction to one extreme, others then go to the other extreme. Luther described this kind of deal like a drunk trying to get on a horse. He falls off one side, and then when trying to get back on, he falls off the other. It's tough to find that balance, isn't it? We left off last week in our study of Philippians, zeroing in on Jesus' example of downward mobility and a life poured out for the sake of others. And as we have seen over the last two weeks, what ought to be a key word in our Christian vocabulary is the word others. Others. 
so is the word balance. Balance. And if you've been around me at all, you know my love for the word balance. You've heard me speak of living in the center of biblical tension. Balance is usually preferred over extremes. And as we just came through verses 5 through 11 of Philippians chapter 2, you might have left with the feeling of, how in the world can we live like that? How can we, we really live in putting others' needs over our own? How do we live with this attitude of Christ and making our way down the ladder rather than pushing for being the, on the top rung? As Christ was obedient to the point of death, how do we follow in his steps? Is it a matter of, of, of trying harder? Or should it be more of a letting go, letting God approach? A critical question to be answered when it comes to living the Christian life is, how much do I do and how much does God do? What is to be our part and what is to be God's part? I mean, is the Christian walk best summed up by the words active obedience or passive trust? Who is doing what? That's the matter before us this morning. So look with me at the passage Emily just read in Philippians chapter 2. We've been approaching this letter written by Paul and breathed by God around the theme of choosing joy. I remind you that no one or nothing, no one or nothing can rob us of joy without our consent. And as we will see this morning, there is to be joy in our obedience. And that can only come as we have a proper understanding of the ins and outs of Christian living. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, follow along as I read verses 12 and 13 that opens up our section this morning. Philippians 2 verse 12. It says, therefore, my dear friends, see how warmly he speaks to them. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. What should be very clear from just those two verses is that there are two essential parts of Christian living mentioned right here. We see God's part in verse 13, for it said, God works in you. God works in you to will and to act according to his good, good purpose or his good pleasure. God works in you, it says, verse 13. But... Our part is also emphasized in that it says continue, in verse 12, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out. You see, God works in, we work out. It's been called the ins and outs of Christian living. We are to be working out what God is working in. 
Here's the main thought for you this morning. This is it. God works in, we work out, and the result is joy. God works in, we work out, and the result is joy. This dual emphasis of our sanctification, our growing as believers, as supported really throughout Scripture, is absolutely essential to how we choose to live our days in joyful obedience. Now, let's dive in a little more to the ins and outs of Christian living. I find in this section of Scripture two powerful truths that keep the Christian life in a balanced perspective, keep us from wobbling, and contribute to this matter of joyful living, of joyful obedience. Two truths. The first one is this. It takes great effort and energy to grow as Christians. That's point number one, and very important. It takes effort, great effort, and energy to grow as Christians. Verse 12 opens up with the word, therefore. Therefore, which suggests there's a direct connection to what came before. Well, what preceded this section is what we looked at last week as we were given the example of Christ. Christ gave us a pattern to follow. He did something that we would rather not do, if we're honest, and that is to take on a servant's role. He showed us how humility is to be lived out as he made himself humble. He chose the way of humility. We often say, oh, they humbled me. Well, he chose it. They didn't humble him. He chose humility. He went down and, and down and down, as we saw in the illustration of the ladder last week, and he went all the way to the furthest, most radical point of obedience by laying down his life for others. And it is in this matter of obedience that provides the link from verses 5 through 11 to verse 12 and following. This is what Jesus did. Therefore, Christ lived his life for others. Therefore, Christ lived his life in humble obedience. Therefore, do likewise. In other words, those who belong to an obedient Savior should not treat lightly obedience themselves. Those who belong to an obedient Savior should not treat lightly obedience themselves. Have you been treating it lightly? I'm reminded of one dad who spoke of the difficulty of getting his son to clean his room. And he went through this all over and over again throughout his teenage years especially. I know none of you have that problem, but you might be able to sympathize just the same. The son would agree to tidy things up, and then he wouldn't follow through. Well, after high school, the son joined the Marines. (laughs) When he came home for leave after basic training, his father asked him what he had learned in the service. He said, Dad, I learned what now means. I learned what now means. (laughs) Paul says to the Philippians, obey now. Now. Are you delaying obedience? Is there a now commitment to Christ that you have, that is yet to be realized, that you know is there, that's maybe missing right now? I mean, what have you put off doing that you know in your heart and before God you should do? 
obey now. And the word obey here is from which we get our English word acoustics. The idea is placing ourselves under what has been heard and then submitting to it. Are we doing that? Are we doing that when, when, when no one else is around? Because that's the real test. For Paul goes on to say, as you have always obeyed, verse, verse 12, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. What is he saying? He's saying, don't wait for my return to practice obedience. Do it now. D.L. Moody put it this way. He said, character is what you are in the dark. Or it's been said, true character is what we are when nobody's looking. See, there's a tendency to obey when others are looking, but live another way when they are not. I mean, who here hasn't experienced what happens in the classroom? That moment the teacher leaves the room and someone says, she's gone. Oh, no. Whatever it is we are supposed to be doing is greatly altered. And suddenly a boring time in class becomes exciting. I had one teacher in my freshman year of high school leave the room, but then he positioned himself in an empty classroom in the hall adjacent to his class. It was kind of like an L. His, his class was here, and he'd go all the way over here, get in this classroom, and look right over, and he could see exactly what was happening in his class. We were supposed to be taking a test. Boy, we were all in trouble when he came back. Well, not me, but everybody else was. <laughs> you know what I mean. We've seen this happen. We've seen this happen in the workplace. We've seen this happen when parents aren't around and when, when they're around and when they're not. It can happen in the presence or absence of the pastor or fellow Christians. Paul says, believer, this should not be. We're not to live one way Monday through Saturday and then live another on Sunday. Children, are you saying all the right things when your parents are nearby listening and then act another way when left to yourself? Believer, who are you when no one is looking? It's worth noting our motive for obedience found in the words here at the end of verse 12 with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. Fear and trembling ought to, ought to be what drives us to do what we do and to not do what we shouldn't do. You know what's wrapped up in that idea of fear and trembling? A lot of things, really. I'm just going to kind of boil it down to just one or two things. But really what it is, it's to recognize that someone is watching. It's to live with, with awareness that I am always visible to God, even if no one else can see me. So in that hotel room, or when you have the house to yourself, or when your spouse or parent or teacher or boss won't catch you, we're visible. We ultimately are accountable to him who sees all, who sees all. And the beautiful thing is, is that, is that, is that the God who sees our every move, the God who knows our every thought, the God who goes with us everywhere, everywhere, loves us anyway, understands us completely, and he wants to keep us from the painful consequences of disobedience. You see, our Father really does know best. That's why we're admonished to work out our salvation. 
It doesn't say work up our salvation, nor does it say work for our salvation. Because salvation cannot be earned by our efforts. No clever arrangement of rotten eggs can make for a good omelet, as C.S. Lewis put it. And neither can any amount of works earn us good favor with God and earn us salvation. It is only when we recognize our need of someone else to save us are we then in a position to receive the gift of eternal life, which is through Jesus Christ who paid the penalty for your sin. So Paul isn't saying we work for our salvation, for our salvation. He's speaking to those who have already put their trust in Christ, and he calls them to work out their salvation. It means working our salvation to completion. The phrase work out was used of working a mine or working a field to get the greatest harvest possible. And the same way, we ought to keep working and never let up so that we can reach our potential in Jesus Christ. You see, work out is a continuous action in which we're moving toward achieving God's purposes for our lives. And we're working at it, we're working at it, we're working at it. See, the Christian life, loved ones, is hard work. Stories told of a rich couple who wanted to get married but they couldn't find anyone to perform a short ceremony. And that's what they wanted, a, short, a very short ceremony. So they offered a pastor $1,000 if he could keep the ceremony less than one minute. Under a minute. Well, after struggling with reducing his normal wedding ceremony down to one minute, the big day finally arrives. And when the bridal, bridal march ended, the preacher looked at the groom. And, and then the preacher looked at the bride and he said, Do you? Don't you? Will you? Won't you? I now pronounce you husband and wife. You may kiss your bride. That's it. They went home. Listen, a wedding is one thing, but marriage is another matter completely. Getting married is easy. Staying married is hard. You don't just get married in a matter of minutes and then you're done. In the same way, salvation is a present tense experience. It isn't something you did when you signed a card or you went up front or you raised your hand or you said a prayer. It is something that presently manifests the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life presently. It is seen in a continual desire to seek God to gather for worship, to love one another and all the other things that God commands us to do. See, we don't just get saved and then we're done any more than we get married and we're done. We're not. It will demand our time. It will impact our marriage. It will infiltrate our relationships. It will dominate our singleness. The gift of salvation calls us to work out our salvation every part of our lives. So it begs the question, is it being worked out? Is it being worked out? Is it being worked out in your, in your life? Is it being worked out in your, in your job site? Is it being worked out at, at school? Is it being worked out when you're the only Christian around? Is it being worked out in your marriage? Is it being worked out in your home? Is it being worked out where you go Monday through Saturday? And you know what? Every believer in this room is to be working out their salvation. 
We can't work out our salvation as a church beyond what we are working out as an individual. It's amazing to me. It's amazing to me how some want the church to be something they aren't even working out in their own life. We can hear, why isn't the church winning more souls? Are you winning souls? Why isn't the church more loving? Are you loving? Why isn't the church more dynamic? Is your faith dynamic or is it plateaued? You can't expect the church to be more beyond where you are. Am I doing and giving the effort that I ought to give and growing as a Christian? Am I working it out? Oh, we just want somebody to give us three easy steps to maturity and holiness, and we'll take them next Friday and be godly. Doesn't work that way. We must work out our salvation. Will he do for us what we should be doing ourselves? I don't think so. Jerry Bridges speaks to this in his book, The Practice of Godliness. He says, we would much rather pray, Lord, make me godly, and expect him to pour some godliness into our souls in some mysterious way. God does, in fact, work in some mysterious way to make us godly, but he does not do this apart from the fulfillment of our own responsibility. Work out your salvation. Now, if we were to check out from the sermon right here, you're going to leave with an imbalanced perspective on the Christian walk. You're going to start to wobble. You'd have this idea that what we must do here in the Christian life that is just kind of grit our teeth, pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, and just try harder. Well, the balance is found in the next verse and the next truth. The next profound truth here is we are not left to ourselves to live the Christian life. We are not left to ourselves to live the Christian life. So we have this example of, of Jesus here uh, prior to these verses. But, but, but when we, what, we, what is different about this example of Christ from all other examples that we have, and we're going to look at a couple of them next week, is that not only is a pattern to follow, but Jesus gives us the power within to follow it. Other examples may inspire us, but they cannot enable us. Other examples may motivate us, but they have no power to change us. We're not left to follow the example of Jesus Christ on our own. For he says, verse 13 says, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. And when it speaks of God working in us, think divine power, think divine energy. It's really the word there. When we are the target of attack, it is his divine power and energy that gets us through it. When we are up to our eyeballs and doing things for the Lord, it is his divine energy that provides us with staying power. When we feel overwhelmed with life's heartaches, it is God's divine power and energy that helps us to regain perspective. When we figure that we can't take that next step of obedience, or we can't reach out to, to that needy person ever again, or, or we, we can't even lead that Bible study one more time. It is God's power that enables us to go at it again. When that relentless, nagging temptation gets its foot in the door, it is God's power and energy that allows us to slam that door shut on temptation. Don't just grit your teeth, try hard. 
God arrives at each moment. The power of God living in us is always there to work for us at every turn, every situation we encounter. Left to ourselves, we're going to go in the opposite direction of God. But God works in us to will and to do. Any of my doing is the result of his divine energy. It is possible. It is possible to live our lives apart from his control. But it is absurd to do so. The power is there, loved ones. We have everything we need for life and godliness, we're told in Peter's epistle. And you see, as I bring God's word to you each Sunday, it's not my intention for you to leave with the message, try harder. It's more than that. It's at least that, but it's more than that. It is a life surrendered to the power of God. It is to let God take charge. It is to let God step in and take over. Listen, the work of God can only be carried out by the power of God. Did you hear that? The work of God can only be carried out by the power of God. God works in, we work out, and the result is joy. And if we are to choose joy daily, then we need to get this right. Because if you're living the Christian life in one extreme or the other, passive resignation, or that you think it's all about you and what you can do, then joy is likely missing from your life right now. I can safely say that. But bring those two truths together, and we can live in joyful obedience. We heard it earlier. Trust and obey. Trust and and obey, for there's no better way, no other way to be happy in Jesus. Both parts at work, and the result is joy. And each day that we choose to operate on strictly human energies, another day, joy is absent. Joy is choosing to live Christ-empowered. Are you living by the power of God? Brian, are you living by the power of God? What does that look like, you ask? How will we know we're living by the power of God? How do we answer that? Well, there's many answers for that, but Paul never misses an opportunity to show us what it looks like in everyday living. And the principles of verses 12 and 13 need to be applied to life. And Paul shows us the kind of areas he has in mind as to where we should be working out our salvation. And I don't have time to unpack all that's here in verses 14 through 18. But, and a couple of verses I might pick up next week. But let's pull out one area where we can apply these two principles to life. Where we are to work out our salvation. Empowered by God. What does that look like? Now you probably wish I ran out of time by the time I came to verse 14. But here it is. Verse 14, I didn't run, I planned it. We're we're on track. I got a lot of time for this, actually. (laughs) Look at verse 14. Follow along as I read. Verse 14 says, do some things without complaining or arguing. (laughs) That's what I wish it said. It says everything. So I looked this up in the original language, in the Greek. You know what I discovered? Know, Know what the word everything means in the original? Everything. There's no way around it. And everything we do, we must do without complaining or arguing. (laughs) How are you doing on that one? 
Actually, the word for, for complaining or grumble here is, is, is this low-toned, muttering, muted comments. It's kind of a word that sounds like what it really is. I don't have to clean my room. I don't have to clean my room. My brother never has to clean his room. His room must be. That's what it sounds like. That's grumbling. That's what it means, muttering. We don't do that. We just know people who do. It is possible to do the right thing, but do it in a spirit that robs us of the joy in it. Verse 14 is concerned not only what we're doing, but the manner in which it's done. That's his primary concern. Are you a chronic complainer? You know, studies show that, that, that complainers actually live longer. Someone said, I challenged that one. I don't think they really do. It just seems like they do. <laughs> true. Takes its toll on everybody around us. Are you grumbling your way through life? Are you grumbling your way through ministry? Are you grumbling your way through parenting and daily activities? Is your negativism taking its toll on your spouse and your children and and those you work with and others around you? Two small children were not too happy about being on an airplane and they were old enough to know better. Their cries of complaint filled the cabin. You know, everybody else in that plane is going, oh, it's going to be a long flight. Just before takeoff, a flight attendant stopped next to these two kids and said with a big smile, what is all this squawking up here? And then the flight attendant bent down and whispered very seriously, I must remind you that this is a non-squawking flight. (laughs) Amazingly. The little ones became unbelievably quiet, which made everyone else feel better. Let's face it. It's a long journey when you have to sit in the squawking section. Likewise, likewise, the church's journey to glory can be painful and laborious enough without the squawking. Let's be known as a non-squawking church. Why is this so important? Because of what comes next. In context, verse 15 says, so that, so that. In other words, here's the purpose for working out our salvation without complaining or arguing. So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault. Where? In a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. Do you see what this is saying? I can sum it up this way. You cannot shine and whine at the same time. How's that? You cannot shine and whine at the same time. Try and do both. If you're whining, you ain't shining. Felt like a southern preacher right there. Where are we to shine? In here? I mean, if our faith stops at the door of the church, then, then, then it isn't of any use, really. It's in the darkness where stars shine. No need to shout and scream or make a scene. Just shine. That's what light's supposed to do. I like what D.L. Moody says in reference to this and using the analogy of a lighthouse. He says, lighthouses do not ring bells and fire cannons to call attention to their shining. They just shine. 
We're to shine in a crooked and depraved world. And folks, there's darkness out there. It's a crooked and depraved world. Yes, it is. Pick up your paper, look around you, have your eyes open. It is crooked and depraved. It's dark out there. It's dark out there. In Albany area, it is dark. In case you need more evidence of that, of the darkness around us, there was a study done recently that listed America's most and least Bible-minded cities, with one being the most Bible-minded and 100 being the least Bible-minded. Can you guess where Albany and the surrounding area was on that list? Again, one was most Bible-minded, 100 was least Bible-minded. Where do you think Albany landed? Number 99. 99. New England, all of New England Northeast didn't fare so well. I'm not too proud of Portland either. A study was also done on the most post-Christian cities in the country. The most post-Christian cities in the country. They listed several factors to determine post-Christian. Factors like do not believe in God, um, have not attended a Christian church in the past year, have not read your Bible in the last year, have never made a commitment to Christ, identify as an atheist or agnostic, and on and on it goes. There's like 15 factors, with one being the most post-Christian. Do you know where Albany and the surrounding areas ended up? Number one. Number one. And to be number one, you had to meet at least 80% of 15 factors. I'm going to put a few of the results back there in the Northex if you want to pick them up afterwards, just a few of them if you want it. But is it dark out there? Is it dark? We live in a crooked and depraved world. Let's shine rather than whine. If we take this seriously and we work out our salvation in a crooked and depraved world by the power of God, I can guarantee it's going to turn some heads for the good. Because people eventually have to pay attention to transform lives. God works in, we work out, the result is joy. The result is we, we live in joyful obedience. The result is we shine for Christ. Are we wobbling? Are you wobbling? He has a telltale sign that you are out of balance. A complaining spirit. I speak to myself. I cannot be abiding and complaining at the same time. Complaining is in direct proportion to my remaining in Christ. And to the degree I am going, to, I'm going at this Christian life alone is the degree I am prone to complain. God works in We work out, and the result is joy. Is yours a joyful obedience? Has it been too much of you and not not as much of him lately? Are we shining or whining? Is it time to replace our complaining with rejoicing as he ends this section with on rejoicing? It's a perspective. We need to change perspective. I served with a guy in Portland who used to love to say, I complained I didn't have any shoes until I met someone who had no feet. (laughs) It's true. It's perspective. We complain and complain and complain. (sighs) Could it be worse? Reminded of the true story of a pastor while on a short-term missions trip, and he visited a leper colony on the island of Tobago. 
His day was filled with grumbling and his spirit was not right as he went to lead the service. That all changed as he was leading the singing when this woman, who up to this point had been facing away from the pulpit, she finally turned around. It was the most hideous face I had ever seen, the pastor said later. The woman's nose and ears were entirely gone. And she lifted a fingerless hand in the air and asked, Can I request a hymn to sing? Sure, what is it? The pastor asked. This hideous-looking woman, physically mangled because of leprosy, replied, Can we sing Count Your Blessings? And I complain about what? And overcome with emotion, the pastor left the service. He was followed by a team member who said, I guess you'll never be able to sing that song again. The pastor replied, yes, I will, but I'll never sing it in the same way. If there's anyone we might say had a right to complain, it would be this woman. She replaced complaining with rejoicing. She chose to shine and to allow God to work in her and through her. And so if you've been wobbling as of late, trying to live the Christian life in your own power, I guarantee complaining and grumbling has come out. Choose to live instead a Christ-empowered life. God works in, we work out, and the result is joy. And so as we make our way to the back of the sanctuary... And out those doors, out into a dark world, let Jesus' life shine through you. Let it shine through me. God works in. We work out. Result is joy. Let the world see that. Let us shine for Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. Let's pray. Lord, nothing else I can add to this but a simple prayer will enable me to do this. Enable these, my brothers and sisters in Christ, my loved ones here, to do what this passage is speaking about. And we not try and go out and do it in the flesh. That wouldn't be pretty. Let us do it empowered by Jesus Christ as you work in us. May we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Let it shine, letting our life shine for Jesus Christ in a very dark world. For your glory, for your purposes, use us in Jesus' name. Amen. We ought to pray. Make me a blessing. I'm changing the last hymn. Make me a blessing. I think it's 452. Yes, it is. Four, five, two, make me a blessing because that's what it's about. Let Jesus' life shine through us. Be a blessing to someone today. Be a blessing as we let our light shine for him. Let's stand and sing four, five, two as we close with make me a blessing. <laughs>